0: The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Uh, we are going to uh, dive in here to uh, a passage in scripture that is weighty, it is complicated, and the topics are deeply uncomfortable. Sound good? Um, great. Uh, it, we, we are going to need to pray. What I'm going to do here for a moment is I'm actually going to read the passage. Uh, I do want to mention this. As a church family, we talked about this last week in the sermon that kind of set the stage for what's happening in Matthew 24. Uh, as a church, uh, we have to kind of like decide, each of us in our own lives and as a community, do we feel like we get to stand over God's word and kind of critique it and, and figure out what we like and what we don't like, what we're going to receive and what we're not going to receive? Or uh, do we believe that it actually is the word of the Lord? Every week we say, this is the word of the Lord. We say, thanks be to God. If it is the word of the Lord, then then we need to decide, are we going to come underneath it? Are we going to actually submit ourselves to the word of God, even when it's uncomfortable? Even when it brings us face to face with topics that are kind of like, kind of great against our cultural sensibilities, even when it's complicated and we have to actually work to understand what's happening in the passage. And and that's where we're at today. We're, We're in a passage that we have to work to understand because of some history of misinterpretation, but also it's a genre of literature and some topics that are a little bit confusing for us in the way we tend to read things. But also it's topics that we don't tend to talk about in our culture and are deeply uncomfortable. And so when I come... Face to face with these kinds of areas in Scripture, I'm learning to anticipate God doing significant things. Uh, when when I come across places in the Bible that are uncomfortable, unfamiliar, feel foreign, or again not kind of super enjoyable to think about, I'm learning to believe the problem is in me and in my perspective, in my approach, and that I want God's Word to reframe and reshape the way I see reality the way I see the world, the way I see history, the way I see my own heart, the way I see my own approach to life. And I think this passage, I think God wants to do significant things in our community. But it will be challenging today, and it will be uncomfortable, and I'm just giving you a heads up. So at least when it is, you're like, well, he said it was going to be, and it was, so there we go. Um, also, I'm, I'm going to acknowledge in a, in a sermon, a lot of times we do some time explaining the passage, try to uh, illustrate it in ways that are down to earth and help you really connect it to kind of normal stuff in life and bring it to bear kind of uh, in your life and application in meaningful ways. Uh, on this particular sermon today, we're going to lean way more into explanation. On a Sunday, it's not, I mean, I love, I could talk about this stuff for like three weeks and it's like my favorite thing to learn about and to talk about. That's why I preach really long all the time. Uh, including last service. So, um, but uh, on a passage like this, because of how easily and often it's misunderstood, I think it's worth leaning into. And so I'm really believing, and we'll pray here for a moment, um, that God will, as we work to understand his word, that his spirit will enliven it, like awaken us to the beauty of it and help us bring it to bear. And then we'll spend more time next week unpacking its significance. Uh, we'll get a little bit of that this week, but more time next week. We are in this section, Matthew 23 to 25, for like five weeks. And so, you know, if, you're, if you don't like being around uncomfortable things, don't come. Um, if you want to lean into what God has to say to the world and to your life, then like lean in because then God wants to do beautiful things. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take it with you as a gift uh, from Park Church. We want to be a church community that's in the word, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. And so if you're new to the Bible, uh, you know, I encourage you to start at the beginning of Matthew and just work your way through. Uh, we're, we're at the tail end of a, of a biography of Jesus, and it's a really, it's a really compelling story. Matthew chapter 24 says this, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let not the one or let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Do you get it? All right. Um, We need to pray uh, that God would open up these things to us, and so would you join me as we ask him to work in us and uh, among us as his people. Jesus, we, uh, we confess that we need you deeply. We need you all the time. We need you for life and breath and everything. We need your word for wisdom. We need your authority and your power. We need your grace and your mercy. And right now, we need your Holy Spirit to help awaken us to the reality of your word, to help us understand, to help us not just understand in our heads, but for the realities of what you're speaking about and its relevance in our lives to make its way into the depth of of our hearts, that we could be a people that see you, that know you, that love you, and that follow your way of life. And so would your spirit work in power among us this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, There was a, a TV show came out several years ago called Man in the High Castle. Did you guys see Man in the High Castle? started off kind of interesting, and it got weirder. The whole multiverse thing got weird eventually for me, Uh, but I was so compelled by the sort of, like, framework of it. Essentially, it's this sort of dystopic vision of the world where it's imagining an alternative narrative to the ending of World War I, or World War II, where instead of the, the Allied forces winning, the, the Axis powers win. And so the world itself is sort of dominated by the, this kind of world superpowers are kind of Japan has taken over the Western U.S., coming from Hawaii into the western U.S., and Germany, and the Third Reich of Nazism has made its way in the eastern U.S. And those regimes and kind of ways of thinking and living had sort of become not just a power in the world, but the global superpower. And you get this kind of different vision of what, what would our experience look like in America if that were the case. If, if the Allied forces didn't win World War II, what, what would that mean for the world? And it kind of just gets you thinking, what would it it be like? And, And for those that live in America or have lived most or all of your life in America, it's hard for many of us to understand what would it be like to live in a world where there is a regime that's reigning over you, that has power over you, that's enforcing a way of life that is crushing to you and to others. Enforcing a way of life where they're elevating their own kind of value system in a particular value system, in particular, sort of like kind of uh, this hope to purify the human race in this sort of like Aryan kind of like purity that would exterminate and murder countless hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jewish people, that would murder people with mental or physical disabilities that would murder and exterminate anybody who opposed their way of life or people that they saw as like in any way kind of like um, a social outcast, people that weren't contributing to society as a whole with this hope of purifying the human race by their sheer force. And power, and if you felt that as a threat to yourself or somebody in your family or your neighbors or your friends and you wanted to do something about it and you spoke out against it, then you would also die. And if you were to imagine a world where you're living under that regime which people over the past hundred years have lived in those spaces and still today live in societies and places where that's still the case. And you had no power to change that government on your own. What you would be pleading for is judgment. What you'd be pleading for is some stronger entity, some stronger power to come and execute a kind of justice that brings judgment on that evil, destructive power, such that you would be delivered from that power and could finally live in a world that's more marked by justice. And so that idea of longing for deliverance through judgment, is a sort of fundamental biblical framework and a really, a really common human framework for understanding the nature of salvation. That salvation comes in human societies and in human history and in biblical history through judgment. That when you're in a place where you're stuck under a power that is destructive and unyielding, and you cannot escape from or flee from or overtake that power what you're longing for is some entity to come in and execute judgment and that judgment is a means of salvation so in biblical conception salvation and judgment are two sides to the same coin salvation comes through judgment judgment is the gateway to and the doorway to salvation or deliverance and that's common throughout the whole biblical story that when people are held captive by destructive and unyielding power, the only path towards restoration and justice is for a stronger entity to execute judgment, to execute judgment on that destructive power to deliver people from its grip and to reestablish justice. And so that's sort of the, the biblical framework, that if you're held, held captive under destructive and unyielding power, you need a stronger entity to come in to execute judgment on that power, to deliver people from its grip, and to bring people into a world where it's more marked by restoration and justice. And that storyline is what we're kind of looking at in Matthew 23, 24, and 25. It's really ultimately what the mission of Jesus is all about, his mission, to deliver people from destructive and unyielding powers by bringing judgment, deliverance, and restoration. The work I want to do today to help us understand how this works out in Matthew 24 is more of a biblical theology of that theme. And so I want to kind of back up and look at how this theme works itself out in the biblical storyline in such a way that will bring us to Matthew 24, and and we won't get into all the details of Matthew 24, we won't be able to understand all the natures of how these kind of forms of literature and these sort of oracles work, there's just way too much there um, for us to cover on a morning like today, but I want us to understand the the thrust of it, and then at the end we'll kind of bring it to bear in our lives in just a few specific ways. And so we're going to back way up like we do nearly every week uh, to Genesis, the beginning of the story to understand how this concept of judgment and salvation work itself out. So in the very beginning of the story, and if if you're here and you're like, okay, like settle in, if you have a thinking cap, put it on, if you have reading glasses, slip them on, like whatever you need to do, we're going to like dive in, take a deep breath, and we're going to hold that breath for like 30 minutes, and then we'll come back up and uh, and talk about why it matters. But I want you to like work to stay with me, and and we're going to stretch a little bit today. Sound good? Can we try? Can we try to stretch a little bit today? We're going to stretch a little bit today. All right. So Genesis chapter 1 begins with this king giving these decrees. And it's the creator king decreeing the world into existence, bringing abundance and order. And so the whole framework is God is the creator king saying, let there be. These are these kingly decrees. And then it says, and it was. like all creation, all creatures submit to the word of the king. And the verdict over it is really good. It's really good. And so the king decrees, creation obeys, it's really good. And you get this sense that there's a kingdom with abundance and order and flourishing, and it's really, really good. And that's the sort of setup of Genesis 1 and and 2, and the mission that humans are given in that space is to extend the goodness of this kingdom by, by walking in communion with the creator king, by receiving his love, walking under his authority, and representing that reign until the whole world is filled up with the goodness of this kingdom. But instead of doing that, a a spiritual force of darkness in the form of a serpent makes its way into the garden and it offers a lie. And the lie is simply this. I can give you the things that the king does and I can actually give you something better, but you're going to have to turn away from his reign. You're going to have to trust this, that if you really want life, if you really want glory, if you really want joy, you have to grasp for it on your own terms. Don't trust His wisdom. Don't trust His Word. He's just trying to hold you back. If you really want joy, if you really want life, you have to grasp for it on your own terms. You have to declare yourself independent. You have to declare your autonomy from the King. Go your own way, and then you will truly have life. And so Eve and Adam take the fruit of this tree, they declare their independence from God, their his reign, they eat of the fruit, their own heart desires it. And as they eat of this fruit, something dramatic happens in the story where they're experiencing a separation from the God of love. They're exiled and expelled from his kingdom. And there's also a separation between the two of them. And that separation between the two of them that even in Genesis 3 is told to be marked by this sort of competitive desire to, claw, to climb to claw over top of each other lays a foundation for what has happened throughout all of human history. It's a sort of like foundational concept that what we as humans do when we reject the love of God which he gives freely and graciously to all of his people, all of his created beings, when we say, I want to push away from that, and we separate ourselves from it, we start establishing our own sense of worth, our own sense of value, our own sense of satisfaction, our own sense of joy, our own sense of life on our own terms. And what that always leads to is somebody else getting pushed down. In the attempt to exalt ourselves on our own terms, we push other people down. And that happens at an interpersonal level, in relationships and friendships. It happens at a family level. It happens from tribe to tribe, city to city, nation to nation. And really, Genesis 4, 5, 6, all the way through Genesis 11, is a story of that fundamental desire to lift up ourselves on our own terms and the destructive impact that has on other people. And it kind of brings it, scales it up to like a civilization level. So you see with Cain and Abel at an interpersonal level where sin is just crouching at the door and as soon as, as soon as Abel is elevated and exalted by God and honored by God, Cain wants to kill him. And you watch that work itself out in whole civilizations and societies until you get to the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, it's humans getting together. Like, we're gonna do this all together. We're gonna build up this tower and we're gonna make our name great and we're gonna lift ourselves up. We're essentially gonna try and rebuild the kingdom without the king where we're in charge, our way. And it lays a sort of like archetype for what happens throughout all human history and societies. We try in all of our different forms and fashions to kind of build a sense of justice and, and peace and satisfaction and joy on our own terms, and it always leads to pain. And so what you get in Genesis 11 is God seeing that human effort and saying, no, no. Humanity cannot build a sense of flourishing life apart from me. It's not because he's like, I just don't want him to have it without me. It's because there is no life apart from the God of life. There is no love apart from the God of love. There is no justice apart from the God of justice. When we do it on our own terms, it always leads to pain and destruction. It's the fundamental thing that God said. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree, the, de- the day you declare independence, you will surely die. You will be on the road towards destruction. And as humans build their own civilizations on that road, He brings judgment. He frustrates those attempts. It's always happened in every civilization ever. And so you fast forward in the biblical story. After the Tower of Babel crumbles in this act of judgment from God, God says, I'm not like kicking humanity to the curb, I'm going to save humanity. And he calls this man named Abraham. Not because Abraham was great. He just did it in his sheer grace and called Abraham, follow me. I'm going to show you the way to to life. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless your offspring. And through one of your offspring, I'm going to bring blessing to the whole world. Not in humanity's attempt to do it on their own, just because of his gracious compassion for the world, his love for the world. He's going to do it. He makes the gracious promise. I'm going to do it. And so Abraham trusts God and follows God not perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. He's kind of a wreck regularly, which is like another theme that runs all the way through the Bible is we are all regularly a wreck. And uh, Abraham is no exception to that, but he keeps leaning in to trust that God is going to do this thing. He's going to do this thing, and he trusts, and Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 children, become the the nation of Israel. Israel, through a lot of different circumstances, finds its way as refugees, kind of small community of refugees in a land of Egypt, okay? In the land of Egypt, Egypt is then kind of portrayed as the first sort of like full-scale human effort to build their own kingdom apart from the reign of God at the expense of others, and it just unpacks it. That the pharaoh of Egypt is trying to build storehouses and and these cities of, of just kind of storing up more and more wealth and more and more power. And eventually the people of Israel are growing and he sees them as a threat to his power. So he does what humans do when their power is under siege and he pushes back. And he puts them under these... Oppressive kind of like institutions of slavery and labor that were crushing them, eventually killing their children. And so the people of Israel start crying out to God for what? For salvation and judgment. What they're crying out to God for is save us from this oppressive power. We can't get out of it. We can't escape it. Our children are dying. Our lives are getting crushed. We are withering under these inescapable burdens. Save us. And they cry out to God, and God hears their cry, and he brings salvation and judgment through a man named Moses. He calls Moses to be an instrument through which he appeals to Pharaoh. He doesn't just come and crush the Egyptian empire. He appeals and he appeals and he appeals and he appeals, pleading with Pharaoh time and time again to let my people go. Just let the people go. Stop crushing the people. And and Pharaoh, in his commitment to his own kingdom and his own reign and his own exaltation and elevation, rejects the pleas over and over and over. Ten plagues over, he rejects the pleas until finally there's a final plea. A final plea. If you do not let my people go, if you don't release my people from this crushing captivity, I will bring a kind of judgment that will make your bones tremble. It wasn't the first thing he did. It was after 10 plagues and warnings and pleas. But it finally comes to this place where Pharaoh's heart is so hard that he will not do it. So God promises a final act of judgment. Is the judgment arbitrary from an angry God? His judgment is an act of love to rescue his people. It's an act of salvation, and God brings judgment through the death of the firstborn children in Egypt. Even so, he offers a way of escape. He offers a way of salvation. For any, anybody that would just trust him, paint the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, and you will be spared. And the people of Israel do that, and they experience salvation through judgment. They go out into the waters of the Red Sea. He parts the waters of the Red Sea. They come out of the waters. The Egyptian army pursues them. The waters crash back over the Egyptian army, and the people of Israel come out the other side delivered, saved. This is the sort of the archetype of salvation in the biblical story, that the people of Israel are saved through judgment. The people of Israel sing the song, the song of Moses, about God as a warrior who sees people in pain, sees people getting crushed, sees people getting oppressed, and he comes with power to redeem, to deliver, and to execute judgment on those who crush humanity. And this is the framework this is the framework. What's stunning about the story is the people of Israel celebrate this, and they love this, and they they come finally through the wilderness. Long story. They get through the wilderness 40 years. They come out the other side in the promised land. God's going to be with them. He's going to be their God. He gives them wisdom again, and he's like, here's my way. Follow my way, and they establish their own kingdom, and David becomes king, and then David's son Solomon becomes king, and Solomon's like, I'm going to trust the word. I want wisdom. God give me wisdom, and God gives him wisdom. He's like, I'm going to follow you, and then he gets some wealth, and He's like, I like wealth. Give me a little more wealth. And he gets a little more wealth and a little more wealth. And he gets, he gets a palace. He's like, I like this palace. I want a little bigger palace. He gets a wife. And he's like, I'd like 700 more of those. And um, <laughs> give me 300 concubines, whatever that is. Uh, I just, just want to surround myself with that. And he just keeps going and going and going. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Israel is starting to build up its own kingdom, it starts enslaving people, and it starts looking a whole lot like Egypt. It starts looking a whole lot like Babel it starts looking a whole lot like the kind of community that 's building up its own name at the expense of others and the prophets come into this moment and start declaring judgment is coming, but not on Egypt, not on assyria judgment 's coming to Israel, you have become like Egypt, you have become like Babylon, you are doing what humans do. You're using your own power to lift yourself up against my reign. You rejected the reign of God, just like Adam and Eve. You're building yourself up on your own term. You're grasping for life and identity and comfort and pleasure and security on your own terms, apart from my word, apart from my reign. You've rejected me again, and judgment is coming. And it does, and it comes in the form of Assyria, and it comes in the form of Babylon. Babylon itself is a means of God's judgment. Babylon is an evil, evil regime. It was an evil kind of like kingdom. And it still was a means of God bringing judgment on the people of Israel. And the story of the Old Testament becomes really clear. No one is innocent. No one is righteous. The fundamental human problem runs straight through all of us. And it's been that way for all of human history. Finally, the people of Israel are in captivity in Babylon. And they're crying out. They... they, rediscover God's word, they realize they, they did the whole thing again where they rejected God and experienced judgment. They start crying out for deliverance. And God's like, too late. He's like, no, I made a promise. I'm faithful to my promise. I will rescue you. I'm going to bring you out and I will, I will establish my kingdom. They come out under the Persian empire you can read about it. You can read about Cyrus the Great, you can read about Xerxes, you can read about that. After the Persians comes the Greeks, Alexander the Great, learned about that in history at some point. After the Greeks come the Romans, and the Romans establish a kingdom, and Jesus is on the scene while the Romans are dominating. And when Jesus shows up as the king, what the, what the people of Israel think is, finally, the kingdom's going to come, finally the promised Messiah is here, and he's going to rid us of those Romans. He's going to execute judgment on the Romans. The Romans are crushing us. We're the crushed people. And he's going to come and he's going to drive out the Romans with force and power, like all the other civilizations have done. Drive them out with force and power. And Jesus comes on the scene. and He's like, that's not the kind of kingdom I'm bringing. I'm dealing with the more fundamental issue. The more fundamental issue. And what he begins to speak against in their society is that the problem isn't just the oppression of the Romans over the Jewish people, the problem is shot straight through his own people. That his own leaders have created systems of kind of trying to prove yourself to God and elevate yourself above others by your works and your religious achievement. So chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus is saying to the religious leaders, you have become like Pharaoh. You've been heaping burdens and burdens of you need to do this and not do that. Do this cleansing and not this cleansing and giving them all these rules that were crushing them under this inescapable burden. And he looked at his people and saw them as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And in his compassion, he has been warning them And in Matthew 23, he says, We sent you prophet after prophet after prophet, appealing again and again and again to stop this nonsense of trying to establish your own worth through your performance and your religious achievements and stop this nonsense of kind of constantly using force to establish your kingdom. Turn to me. And you rejected prophet after prophet after prophet. Now here I am, the very Son of God, with a final appeal. And in Matthew 23, he says, You are not entering the kingdom And you're barring other people from entering, and time is up. Judgment's coming on this generation. This generation right here, right now. And Jesus, at the end of 23, he gets up. He looks at the temple itself. He's in the temple, and he says, "'This house has left you desolate.'" And he walks out of the temple for the last time in the Gospel of Matthew as this kind of picture of the glory of God leaving the the temple, saying, "'That was my house. You've rejected me. It's not my house. You've left it desolate.'" and its time is done. You're crushing people, and I've warned you again and again and again. I've appealed, and your commitment to your own way of life, your commitment to your own power and authority, and your unyielding kind of commitment to this kingdom you've built by your own hands, even through religious means, it's time for it to be done. And so he walks out of the temple, and the disciples see him, and they're hearing this, and they're they're wrestling with it, and they appealed to him, as they look back at the temple, as he's walked out of the temple, they're on their way to the Mount of Olives, leaving the temple, and they, and they say this. It says he was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. It's like, but look at the buildings. What do you mean you've left it desolate? What do you, what do you mean to like walk out of this place? This, this feels weird. Like it's, that's the temple, right? Like, isn't that a big deal to you? And he answered them, you see all of these, do you not? All these temple buildings. Truly I say to you, there will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So this whole thing is going down. The whole thing you all built. You built this big thing. You just forgot about me. And it's going down. And he will say in a moment, you're going to ask when this is going to happen. And he's going to say, it's going to happen within this generation. Look with me at what it says. The disciples are perplexed by this. He sits on the Mount of Olives, verse 3. Tell us, when will these things be? What do you think these things are? It's the destruction of the temple. It's like really, really obvious as you read through it. When, when are all these stones going to get torn down? When will these things be? But they ask more to the question. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They think they're asking one question. But as is often the case with the way God works, is the way he works to kind of bring fulfillment to his promises doesn't often happen in these kind of like singular events. Often there are these layers of fulfillment. We can talk about sort of horizons of fulfillment, things that you could sort of look at and you you could look as we look west westward, right? Like there's the mountains, right? And what you see kind of first, you might see like Lookout Mountain, like behind Lookout Mountain A little further back, you can see Bierstadt and Evans, like another horizon. Behind Bierstadt and Evans, you look a little further back, you might see Greys and Tories, the Continental Divide. You can like see these layers of things. When God talks about what's coming, there are often layers of fulfillment. There are things that are happening here and now that we're in that anticipate things later that are all moving towards a final culminating moment. What they think is all of that's happening in one moment. They think there's one big mountain. And Jesus is going to answer the question in layers of fulfillment. There's something happening now within this generation. He will talk about that from verses 15 all the way up to 35. Beginning in verse 36, he'll talk about how those anticipate a future coming judgment that the whole world will experience. But the reason why I say that is because we can get really lost in the details like, ooh, I wonder what that is, and ooh, I wonder what this is, and I wonder when that's going to happen, and I bet that war is this. And we get obsessed with finding out the particular moment of things, and we lose the fundamental thrust of what Jesus is saying he's actually offering us a way of understanding reality. That when we attempt to build our life apart from the reign of God, which all of humanity and all civilizations do, it never goes well. It can go well for a while. You can build wonderful, beautiful kingdoms with pyramids in Egypt, with palaces in Babylon, and with temples in Jerusalem. But when you do it apart from the reign of God, and when you do it in places like in America, with our economic systems and our wealth and our prosperity, and you build up your own life apart from the reign of God, it will never finally end well. It always leads to pain for other people, and it will always finally end in judgment. Finally end in judgment. And God is offering, Jesus is offering to his people a lens through which to view those realities to experience deliverance and salvation, to know his mercy and his love, but also to enter into a kingdom that is not shaken. A kingdom that's not, not marked by exalting ourselves over against others, but a kingdom that is fundamentally founded on self-sacrificial love. Like a beautiful, beautiful way of life where Jesus is inviting people into a different kind of kingdom. So look with me at what happens in the passage. We're going to just look at a couple of details as we work through it, and we'll spend some more time unpacking it next week. So they ask this question, what will be this, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus is going to answer them in verses 4 all the way through verse 14 with a broad framework that just understands, here's sort of the nature of reality. Divisions, strife, wars, famine, earthquake, pain, difficulty, people trying to lead other people astray, people leading people into wrong ways of life, even people within the religious communities deceiving people and leading people in the wrong direction. That's sort of the world in which you will live. And don't think that like if you feel those things happening, like the end is right now, that's just going to be the nature of things before the end comes. It's the sort of birth pains. It's the groaning of a world that's rejected the reign of God. So when you feel Ukraine, or earthquakes in Turkey or Syria or divisions and pain in our own city or our own nation. These are just the, the nature of humanity's life pushing away from the reign of God where it's, it's just a part of the reality of a life where we've said no to God's reign and we've brought upon ourselves as human beings, all of us, a, a judgment that, that rests, that just rests on the world. And you taste it all the time. You can taste it in your own relationship, in your own family, as your own sins bring pain and destruction to the lives of others and others upon you. We can taste it in our nation. We can taste it around the world. He said all these things are like the beginnings of birth pains. It's a part of it. And then he says this in verse 9, and I'll, I'll read these few verses. Then they will deliver you up to trib- tribulation and put you to death. He says, there's going to be pain and chaos, and that pain and chaos that exists in the world will also be a kind of thing, well, you will experience as my people pain from other people that hate my people, hate my kingdom, hate my reign. People are going to hate that. They're rejecting my reign. They'll feel like a threat. They're going to hate you. They're going to hate the early followers of Jesus. They're going to hate the people of God throughout the ages. That's going to exist. There's going to be pain from outside. There's also going to be pain from inside. There's going to be false teaching There's going to be people within the church that try to elevate themselves or use religious means and systems to elevate themselves, whatever that case may be. There'll be incredible corruption that marks life inside of the people of God, not just self-exalting ways of living, but also deceptive theologies and teachings that lead people astray. That's coming after you. There's also going to be something inside of you in this lawlessness, this propensity we all have to, to look at the things we can get in our own terms, in our own way, and to look at the kingdom of God and start getting excited about living our life according to the value structures of the world. So this is this lawlessness or this kind of turning from God will lead the love of many to, go- to grow cold. That when you look at the world around you and think, if I just had the career, if I just had the family, if I just had the business, if I just had the net worth, if I just had the security, if I just had the control of these situations or circumstances, if, if I just had the health, if I just had the, the right kind of neighborhood, or the right, if I just had the right, then, then it'd be good. And we start letting go, and our love for God, our love for His word, our love for His kingdom grows cold, and many will be led astray. Threats from the outside, threats from within the church, and threats from your own heart. And what Jesus is calling people to in that kind of world is to hold fast to me. Hold fast to me. I'm telling you this stuff before it happens. I'm I'm preparing you. Hang on to me. Hang on to my word. Hang on to my presence. Hang on to my kingdom. When you start like drifting away and you see your love growing cold, like wake up call, this is like leading you away into a place where you're pushing away from the reign of God, which always leads to pain and death and difficulty. So that's the basic framework, and in that space, Jesus is inviting us to actually share the good news of his kingdom, that there's a way of life that's not just like, do your best to be better than other people, and do your best to exalt yourself, and live according to the systems of this world, which we know do not satisfy, which we know, we're like, well, sure, Babylon, sure, Assyria, sure, Rome, but America's great. It's great. It's like, okay. There's so much to be thankful for. There's so much to be—I th- mean that with sincerity—so much to be thankful for. So many men and women who have followed Jesus as a part of this world that have actually tried to bring values in- into our country, into our structures. It's worth being thankful. So many, even non-Christians, that have worked hard to do contribute and to contribute to human flourishing, for which we should be really thankful. There's also corruption that's shot straight through the whole thing, just like every civilization in the history of the world. And if you got in this like sense of like, but we're different, like you are delusional. I'm I'm like, he's not paying attention to history. It's like a deeply arrogant way of thinking. He's not paying attention to history. So in our attempt, I wonder what the American version of trying to exalt ourselves over and above other people is. How are we doing that? How do I do that in my own life? How do I do that? To pay attention to those threats outside of us within the community and in our own heart is the invitation. Not to try to like nail down the date and the time. Well, if you look at this timeline and I read this podcast and I watched this YouTube video of this one guy who said this thing and if I could just figure out the date and how we can equate it to this, this power and the one world currency and this thing and that thing. And it's not what he's saying. He's preparing you. He's giving you a way to think about reality and the threats that are at play as we wait for him to come again and establish his kingdom as we wait for him. In verses 15 through 28, and this this is going to frustrate your kind of the nerds among you. Um, We're we're not going to be able to get into all the details. It is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. I want you to look at verse 34 at what it says. He takes this whole thing about the abomination of desolations, the judgment that's coming on that first generation, that generation that had rejected him. Look at verse 34. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Remember the question from the disciples. Jesus, like, all these stones are going to get tumbled. This whole thing's going down. The whole temple's going down. Tell us, when will these things take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus, like, here's how it's going to work. Here's how the world's going to... Wars, rumors of wars, divisions, nation against nation, hating one another, devouring one another, leading people astray. Hold on tight. Hold on tight. Hang on to me. Endure and tell the world about my kingdom. The end will come after that. Now, about these things, here's what's going to happen. Rome is going to come, and they are going to decimate Jerusalem. And when they come... I'm telling you beforehand because I don't want you to fall prey to it. If you see these things, if you see Rome coming in and desecrating the temple, get out of Dodge. Get out of here. If you're in the field, run. If you're on your house, don't go down and get stuff. Get out. I'm telling you as my followers, this judgment isn't aimed at you. It is aimed at a system that has pushed me out for generations. And so when you see these things, get out of there. Hope it's not in the winter. That'll make it hard. Hope it's not, you're not pregnant because that'll make it hard. Hope it's on Sabbath because getting your stuff ready and getting goods to get ready for your long trip will make it hard. But when it comes, get out. It's coming and it will be brutal. It'll be brutal. It's a falling of a whole system. And he uses all this sort of what's called apocalyptic literature, apocalyptic images. You're like, apocalypse. That's what I was waiting for. The apocalypse. Uh, It's a a form of literature. It's a genre of literature that was way more common and kind of, Hebrew culture, where they're using these images of like a deconstructed world, stars falling, moons darkened, like the world's being undone as a sort of fundamental fabric of society is getting flipped on its head. And he's saying, this whole experience of life in Jerusalem is about to get totally undone. And like, but what about his coming? The understanding of his coming is coming from Daniel 7, and it's about the authority of Jesus the son of man coming in the clouds before the ancient of days, being given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he's saying, you're gonna see this. You're gonna see me given authority. You're gonna see me take my throne. And it's not gonna be what you think. It's not gonna be to drive out the Romans. My throne is gonna be a cross. My exaltation will be my resurrection. I will be given all authority to liberate people, but it's not gonna be from Roman oppression. The kingdom that Jesus is building is delivering us from the more fundamental issue our own rebellion against God, the sin in our own hearts, our own iniquity, our own lawlessness, our own rebellion. He enters into the world not first and foremost to drive out Rome. Rome comes as a means of his judgment on a godless Israel. Rome will eventually meet its judgment as well as all societies built apart from the reign of God will do. Jesus' mission was to build a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Not by using force to dominate other people, but by laying down his life in an act of sacrificial love for the people who rejected him, for people like you and me. As he laid down his life on the cross, he's showing us that the kingdom of God doesn't come by exalting yourself over others. The kingdom of God comes by laying down your life. And Jesus, when he laid down his life on the cross, is taking my sin, your sin, the sin of the world upon his own shoulders, and he was being judged on our behalf. The way Isaiah 53 will say he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and it's with his wounds that we find healing. Isaiah says all of us, we've all like sheep, we've all gone astray, we all went our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's a king who comes to liberate you, to set you free from ways of life that are crushing you. And he doesn't do it by crushing other people. He does it by taking the crushing in his own body. He takes it, the penalty of our sin upon himself, through which we can experience forgiveness and mercy and grace and ultimately redemption from these powers that crush us And an invitation to a kind of life that is free, restorative, light, full of love and restoration and joy, that we can be a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So the call that Jesus gives us in this passage is pay attention. The world is crazy. That's because the world set apart from the reign of God is craziness. The world is getting deconstructed all around us, chaos. It's because the world apart from God devolves to chaos. Not just globally, but in your own life, when you push away from the reign of God, you will feel chaos undoing you. That's not a sign of God kicking you to the curb. It's an expression that when you push away from God, that's what it leads to. His invitation is to be transferred from the dominion of darkness and to come into with grace and forgiveness and love the kingdom of his beloved son, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. May God help us to follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, we come now. And we need you. Uh, I feel the seductive power of the world around us. I feel compelled by it. I feel intrigued by it. I feel enticed by it. I feel myself giving myself to ways of thinking about life, the right experiences, and the right if I just save this money and get this thing and have this experience and do this and get in this situation, if I can just get my family and my comfort and my hobbies to this place, then. I feel the appeal, and I imagine many in this room feel the same appeal, however it works in their own life. Would you hold us fast? Would you awaken us to the lies and the way those lies lead us towards a destructive, heavy, anxious, crushing path? And would you deliver us today? Would you rescue us? Would you free us? Would you wash us, forgive us today and help us to hold fast to you Say, those who endure to the end will be saved. Would you help us to hold fast? Thank you for what you've done to hang on to us, to hold us fast. Would you help us to trust you as a people, to help each other, and help us to share the good news of your kingdom with others in this city and around the world, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.